Let me ask you this question. Who said this? Notice on the screen. The world looks at me as a football player who's a Christian, but I look at the world and say, I'm a Christian who happens to play football. That person was Tim Tebow while he was speaking to 26,000 people in a stadium in San Diego, California. All right, let's second semester test. Who said this? <clears throat> I am not a role model. Just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. You know the answer to that one. That was Charles Barkley in his famous Nike commercial a number of years ago. Well, when Tim Tebow spoke in San Diego, California, he was asked the question, Mr. Tebow, do you see yourself as a role model? And I thought his answer was really incredible for all of you young men and women who are great athletes, who can serve as an example. And also, I forgot to mention Columbus Crusaders going to a national playoff in their division. So I saw you sitting over there this morning uh, doing very well. But what kind of role model can we be in the generation to come? Listen to what Tim Tebow said. He said, there are a lot of role models out there. There just aren't many good ones. To me, that's so frustrating because you have in today's society so many famous athletes in baseball and basketball and football and golf, every sport there is. If we come together to be great role models, it would be amazing to see how the next generation turns out. And then we have these words by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who said, Now with God's help, I will become myself. There is a you that God wants you to be. And no one else can be you if you're not you. God, if God wanted you to be just like Tim Tebow or another Tim Tebow, you would have been a clone. But he thought you were pretty special, that you're a tailor's model. And he wants you to do something very productive and wonderful with your life as well. And so without God's help, you'll never become who you were meant to be. And this is perhaps the hardest question of life that I want to ask you right now. And it's simply this. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you really are? And until you do, you're never really going to know where you fit in. But once you know who you really are, you can fit in anywhere. You can fit in in a difficult situation, in a prison cell, in an impoverished environment, in an older age, with a disability, a handicap, a difficult marriage. Because how you turn out depends on knowing who you are on the inside. And with that in mind, we're going to turn to one of the most uh, difficult scriptures in dealing with the being faithful to the person you are that you can find in scripture. It is in the book of Genesis chapter 39 where we've been looking these days. And we're going to go back there and visit again this morning. When we last saw our hero, and you know by now his name is Joseph, he had been betrayed by his brothers. He had been sold to slave traders who took him down to Egypt, and there he was sold to the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's court, a gentleman by the name of Potiphar. And, and Potiphar was ahead of everything that Pharaoh had. Joseph at this point is 17 years old. He's far from home. He's a slave in Egypt. His brothers had betrayed him. And his father thought he was dead. They had given up on him even being alive. And as Genesis 39 opens up, we see a very bleak future for a young teenager about to become college-age student, uh, Joseph, that's very bleak. And there is one fact and only one fact that give us any hope that this story is going to turn out okay. 
And it is the words that you'll see there in verse 2 of chapter 39, those brief words that say, and the Lord was with Joseph. Even in this prison cell, in this difficult situation, the Lord was with Joseph in that setting. And that makes all the difference in the world. Guys, don't tell anyone outside of this room, but this is Joseph's temptation with sex. One time a guy was asked to give a talk on sex to explain it to everyone. And he stood up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know it gives me great pleasure. Thank you. Come again. And sex is a wonderful thing. And God has a tremendous plan for sex in our lives. But outside of his boundaries, it can become very, very difficult. And this is Joseph's story of Joseph's temptation, his sexual temptation. And we're going to see... In this story, how Potiphar was married to a woman, we don't even know her name, and she does everything she can do like a cougar to attract this young teenage boy and take advantage of him, this young Hebrew slave. And we're also going to see a great outline biblically that's still practical for us today of how he resisted her uh, aggressiveness and how he resisted her advances. I want to begin our investigation of the story with two revealing quotes. They're kind of neat. British... uh, Playwright Oscar Wilde once remarked, I can resist anything except temptation. And if you ever do a study of Oscar Wilde's life, you'll know that he literally meant those words. Uh, In various ways, we know how true they are. Another famous quote came from a guy whose name you'll also know, C.S. Lewis, who observed that no man knows how bad he is until he's tried to be good one time. No one knows how bad he really is until he tries to be good. And the first quote proves the second one. It's precisely because we can't resist temptation that we learn how bad we really can be on the inside and how great we are in need of God's grace. Now, before I start on this message, if you understood what I just said, would you say amen? We are desperately in need of God's grace because there go I but for the grace of God. And uh, so as we look at temptation this morning, I want you to know a couple of things. Temptation for us is the same as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden when it first started. Temptation for us is the same as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the mountaintop when three times Satan tried to encourage him to give up and bow down and worship him. And Satan tempts us today in the same way in everything that we go through. From the very beginning, there has been a battle raging for our souls and our mindset and our worldly outlook of men and women. And it will touch every one of us sooner or later. Now, before you come to Jesus Christ, that may not mean a whole lot. But when you belong to Christ, you live by the creed that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We live by the creed that Christ is going to take care of us and we can deal with the temptations. You say, Frank, would you tell me exactly what temptation is? I don't know if this is a perfect definition, but it's a working definition for our conversation today. Would you notice with me on the screen? Would you allow me this? Temptation is the inner urge to do wrong that hits us in the place of our own personal weakness. And and I hope that works because it shows that temptation ultimately comes from the inside out. It is not that Playboy magazine. It is not that video. Those things can feed to it. It is not that other person in the office. But true temptation has at its roots inside of us is where it begins and where it ultimately comes on the outside from the inside. And while the stimulus may start on the outside, the urge to do wrong comes from the inside. 
And that's hugely important this morning because our tendency as human beings is to place the blame for everything wrong in our lives on someone else. It was the way that I was raised. It was the flirtatious character of that person in front of me. And we fall into sin. But it's not the devil that made, it, made us do it. It's not a titillating person that caused us to fall into sin. It's not an irritating person that caused us to have the road rage and to mess up at that time or some questionable relationship. And may I let your parents off the hook? We cannot blame our parents. We cannot blame our grandparents. We can't blame the DNA, the red color of your hair, anything that you would use. They may factor into the equation. But ladies and gentlemen and brothers and sisters, the inner urge starts inside of each one of us. We are fallen human beings, and it's something we have to deal with. And we can't lay it off on people or circumstances. No one makes us sin. We do that all on our own. It comes from, the with, from within and manifests itself. And in these next 18 verses, there are five principles that Joseph gives us to help us deal with this issue that we call temptation and sin. I'm not going to quote it because I have for the last two weeks, but you'll remember that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that great verse on temptation, reminds us that while we all do face temptation, the same God always, I said not sometimes, but always, provides a way of escape for us that we're able to take it in. And there's no better case of this truth than what we see with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. And it's a very familiar story. I know that you've read it several times. But I want you to see five things, principles, that perhaps will help us with our own struggles. And we all have them. And we have fallen. We do fall down. But as a Christian, we're a weeble. We don't wobble. Uh, we do wobble, but we don't stay down. We come back because of the grace and the goodness of God. Someone give me an amen right now. Because it's going to be hard for you to give me one in about 30 seconds. So, so let, me, let, let me get them up front and I'll store them. When I need one, I'll just say it to myself. Here's principle number one. Would you jot it down on your outline in the back of your worship guide? When things are going well, be on guard. Now, you wouldn't think that Satan would want to attack you when things are going well. But that's one of his prime areas, not just sexual temptation, but any kind of temptation. When things are going well, be on guard. Let me give you the scenario that's happening right here. The scene is in the royal guard, the royal court of Egypt. A, a man named Potiphar enter, enters the room. He's the captain of the bodyguard. It's a position of great honor because it means that he is personally responsible for Pharaoh. And at his side is a young man walking right beside Potiphar. Uh, and he's not an Egyptian. Everyone that's seen walking, seen the walk together, he's an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. But the guy beside him is not an Egyptian. He doesn't look like one of us. He doesn't talk like one of us. He's a little bit different. And if you're an onlooker, you'll notice the young man immediately, and you say, I wonder where he came from. What did Joseph look like? I know you've been waiting years to know this. I happen to know. He was about six foot, one inch tall. <laughs> Maybe give him an inch or two. He probably had wavy brown hair, piercing blue eyes, broad shoulders, straight teeth, muscles, biceps, and triceps. Those things for me to understand, I have to look up in the dictionary. He was a very muscular young man and, and, and had the casual walk of a teenager, you know, with that high confidence that he's going through. Maybe, maybe not cocky, but just confident. And, and he's walking right beside Potiphar as they go through. 
And as he follows Potiphar, all the eyes in the court are upon him. He has it all. Good looks, self-confidence, poise, and a playful sense of humor. The Bible even says in verse 6, notice in your own Bible, it says he was a stud. It says he was a good-looking man. One of only three people all the Bible describes that way. He has it all. And wherever Potiphar goes, Joseph follows. They look good together, these two. And, and not exactly like a father and son, not that type of looking good. But at the same time, not exactly like a master and his slave. It's almost like they're comrades. It's almost like it's a mentor situation. It's almost like they're feeding off each other. They complement one another as they're going through. There's something at work here, a kind of friendship that seems to erase the culture. Have you ever made friends with someone of another race or of another culture, and all of a sudden the culture or the collar don't, doesn't mean anything any longer? You transcend that, and you begin to have this wonderful relationship. Here's Pharaoh, captain of the guard, and I think he likes this young man. And for his part, you're going to see in a moment that Joseph admired his master. He didn't hold it over him like, you, you're, you're squelching me. You're putting your thumb down on me. This is how Moses puts the matter in Genesis chapter 39, beginning at verse 2. Notice with me. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him. Now, isn't that amazing? When the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now, you can say what you want to about Potiphar, but Potiphar was no dummy. He could see a good employee. He could see someone serving him that had the blessing of the Lord and the Lord's hand was upon him. So he puts Joseph in charge of his house. And, and excuse me, verse 4 and 5 make it very clear that Potiphar was very wealthy and had a large estate. And notice what happens once he lets Joseph take over. Look, if you would, in verse 5. It says, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Now, if you're counting, that's five times in four verses that Moses mentions how blessed Joseph was. And there are two things that we can learn from this. First of all, we can learn that lost people are not stupid. They may not under, understand everything that we understand, and they can be lost in their sins, and they can be lost and have spiritual confusion, but they can see the hand of God working in a believer's life. Sometimes they're watching you. Sometimes you are the only Bible a non-believer or yet not yet a Christian will look at and read. And they're lost, but they can see. And sometimes we act like they have no perception at all, that they just don't get it. And it's true that they don't understand our doctrine, but I'm not sure how well we do either. I'm pretty sure they don't understand the fine points of premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial, but Christians are still debating that after thousands of years. They don't get the Trinity, but I'm not sure we get it. Dr. Adrian Rogers once said, he said, if you, don't understand the, if you try to understand the Trinity, you will lose your mind. If you don't accept the Trinity, you will lose your soul. Pretty powerful statement. Lost people may not understand the finer points of doctrine, but I'll guarantee you this much. Lost people can spot a phony miles away. 
Lots of people can tell whether it's a front, a religious front, or if it's genuine and it's real. And they can recognize God's hand at work in a believer's life. And Potiphar may have followed a pagan religion, but he understand that Joseph was different. He even said he could see that the hand of the Lord was upon him, and he respected him for it. And the second thing is I want you to know is that there's no difference and no contradiction between God's blessings and our temptation. That while you're being very, very blessed out of nowhere, when you weren't even looking for it, a temptation would come, and you say, where did that come from all of a sudden? In fact, we're probably more likely to be tempted when things are going really well because that's the season we tend to let our guard down. That's when we just float through and say, oh, I would never mess up. I I could never do anything like that. And Satan hears that, and that's exactly when he likes to strike, when things are going well. And so the lesson's clear. When everything is going your way, when you've got the world by the tail on a downhill slope, when you just got that promotion or you just got that pay raise and and your popularity has never been higher, when when your dreams start to come true, watch out and be careful and keep your eyes open and stay tuned because your adversary, the Satan, the devil, is looking like a roaring lion to see who he can devour. And sometimes, maybe you can jot this down, today's victories can be a doorway to tomorrow's trials. Today, while we're thinking things are going so very well, So that's the first thing. And then the second principle I'd like you to jot down is that when you're tempted, remember who you are. Show your identification. I shouldn't tell you this story, and I'm sorry to say that we're on statewide radio and broadcasting this everywhere, but one time someone gave me an FOP, Fraternal Order of Police, get-out-of-jail-free card. And they said, if you're ever pulled over by a police officer... Just show them this card. And I was pulled over. I was doing 100 miles per hour in a zone that was much less than that. And the officer pulled me over. And I remember, I've got, a, I've got that card in my back pocket. So I'm going to let him know who I am. So I gave him my driver's license, but laid right on top of it and handed it to him and smiled. And he looked at the card and handed it to him. He said, I won't be needing that. <laughs> this is who you are. And, and you have to remember, in times of... Good times and difficult times, you have to remember who you are. And that's the point when Joseph seems to be sitting on top of the world, that a new character enters the story. And when someone new enters, sometimes you have to remember who you are. We don't know her name. The Bible never affords us that. The only thing we know is that she's the wife of Potiphar. And and obviously, she's been looking for someone. She's looking for a relationship. I read in one study on this message this week that it was common in Egyptian culture to have a very low-value morale system, that it was not uncommon at all for a man or a woman to have sexual relationships outside of their marriage. It didn't mean they wanted to leave their wife or their husband. They just wanted more activity. So maybe this was an accepted norm. I don't know that for sure. But but it's interesting in verse 2 of the chapter, it says that Potiphar was an officer and a guard of Pharaoh. If you go back up a few verses and look at that, in the original Hebrew language, one of the interpretations of the guard and the officer means that they were a eunuch. It means that they were castrated. It means that he could not be involved in a sexual relationship. And possibly that's a situation. And if that's the case, to use a modern phrase, then Potiphar's wife was a single married woman. 
And so maybe that was all building up on the inside of her. I don't know. But verse 7 lays out the situation for us with unabashed directness, PG-13. It says in verse 13, After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. That's pretty direct. Not, do you want a cocktail? Would you like to have a meal? Get in bed. (laughs) Just that direct. The, The Hebrew has a wonderful way of putting it. It literally says, she lifted up her eyes at him. The Living Bible says, she made eyes at him. So if you ever say to someone, were you making eyes at him? Just remember what it really means. And so as he crossed the room, she followed him with her eyes and and maybe a smile of satisfaction crossing her face. Hmm, this one will do just fine. Thank you very much, husband. He was a fine-looking young man, young and strong the way Potiphar used to look before he started eating all those late-night meals with Pharaoh and his waistline went away. Young and strong and trim and energetic, just like Potiphar used to be before he had those late-night meetings in the palace that caused him to have bags under his eyes and red in his eyes. That that he was a a perfect person. And yet Joseph looked like an excellent companion for a casual affair, a, a brief meeting between a younger man and an older woman. And she must have been persistent because the Bible says Joseph kept turning her down. She would not take a no for an answer. As you look at verses 8 through 10, it explains that she came back and she came back. And and I don't know why. Perhaps she thought he really didn't mean it when he said no. Perhaps she thought, I can wear down his resistance. Perhaps she thought he really wanted to, but he was afraid to say yes because her husband was his boss. Back she came, slinking into his life, offering him forbidden fruit, ripe and juicy. It's here for the taking, Joseph. Just go ahead. And still in the midst of all of that, he said no. And at this point, it's pretty important to ask why a a red-blooded young man, strong and stud muffin that he would be, would say no to an available woman. Verses 8 and 9 suggest the reason that Joseph said no. Notice with me. By the way, this is the best you've listened in six weeks. (laughs) Notice verse 8. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you... Or his wife. So he was loyal to his boss. But the second thing I want you to see. He was loyal to God. At the end of verse 9 it says. How then could I do such a wicked thing. And sin against God. Joseph did not do it. Because he knew that adultery was wrong. He called it a wicked thing. And a sin against God. These days in 2022. Especially in America. We like to make sin sound less wrong. Than it really is. He, he, he knew it was wrong in that time, and we should know the same thing today. In, in the last few years, we've been assaulted by every type of sexual manifestation on the earth where your children can go in certain schools and begin a transition process of little boys becoming like little girls and sometimes without even parents knowing the, the foreplay of what's going on. 
of sending transvestites and dykes and, and all of these uh, gay rights things into p- kindergartens and, and elementary schools, reading storybooks to your children about how wonderful it would be if a he could become a she or she could become a he. And, and we have a Supreme Court who in the last few years have legalized sexual relationships and marriage between a husband and wife. And you need to know this. The gay rights lobby is as strong in America as the Christian lobby could ever hope to be. There is a movement among corporations and among individuals in our country. And in recent years, our Supreme Court has handed down decisions that have legalized gay marriage in our country. They did the same thing. Nine justices in black robes handing down the legalization of murder of little babies in 1973. But I want you to remember something. Not everything that is legal is moral. Not everything that the law says is okay is really okay. And Christians, amen, praise God. Christians are now under greater pressure to, comp- to, to, to compromise our convictions than we ever have been before. And if not to compromise, you go to work at those big corporations that are in Columbus. Go ahead, the one you work at. And I promise you a donut to a dollar that you're under pressure to keep your mouth shut about things I'm talking about this morning. There is that kind of pressure that's going on. Guys, we don't need to worry about the barbarians who are at the gate. They've already breached the wall, and they're handing in on every stream and every open doorway that they can. So how do we respond to that? I suggest remembering four very important words, and they're simply this. The Supreme Court isn't. There is a court higher than the Supreme Court. There is a law of the eternal. There's a court that sits in Washington, but it's the one that sits in heaven. And the court in heaven is never divided, never uncertain, and never wrong. And we we show respect to earthly courts when we disagree on things, but we reaffirm our conviction that there is a judge who cannot be swayed by public opinion and whose rulings cannot be overturned. And we will, as Christians, carry on with tenacious, winsome courage to be the people that God wants us to be, to be a testimony in this world we live in in 2022, regardless of who has the Senate or the Congress or the White House. You say, Frank, why do we do that? Because of what David said in Psalm 89 and verse, or 119, verse 89. Notice with me. The psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So in times like these, we need an infusion of this Joseph spirit inside of each of our breasts and our heart so that we can move forward. He called Bible things in Bible names. He called this thing with this woman and this man wickedness. Wickedness. He called it a sin against God. Instead of using words like we use today, adultery, we use words like an affair, a tryst, a fling, a one-night stand, sleeping with. You're not sleeping when that's going on. Sleeping with, making love to, call it what you like. Adultery is a sin because God in heaven says that it's a sin. And renaming it doesn't change its character any more than calling rat poison feed and then trying to turn it into bread. And despite his flat refusal, she didn't give up. She kept seducing him. She kept trying. And guys, you see that the world does that? Every time the church makes a step forward, the things of God move forward, like Roe v. Wade perhaps being reversed. But do you see they're already fighting that again? 
After 50 years, we have this incredible turnaround, and the battle hasn't stopped. I mean, she continues on. Notice in verse 11 what it says. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Well, how did that happen? She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. So so what do you do now? She's calling him. She's got on Chanel number something, five. (laughs) Excuse me. I was going to say perspiration 13. But she has has on this very alluring cologne. And she's pulling at him and and says, come to bed with me. And, And she's pulling him down with her. And it's the moment of truth. And in that moment, Joseph had to be prepared. In that very moment, Joseph knew he belonged to God. And I want to tell you something. This is bigger than my words saying it. When you know that you truly belong to God, when you know truly who you are, you can stand strong in the face of temptation and opposition. And David at this point shows that he knew who he was. When a man knows that he belongs to God, it makes the decisions of life easier. When a woman knows that she belongs to God, it makes the decisions of life so much easier. And if you belong to God, you can't sleep with your boss's wife. It's just that simple. It doesn't matter how lonely she is, bless her heart. It doesn't matter how attractive she is, bless your heart. It doesn't matter any of those things. You just can't do it, period, end of story. No discussion needed. No time to mess around. Don't flirt with trouble. Joseph didn't say, well, how far can we go before I cross the sin line? How, How close can we get? He just said no. And he didn't apologize for saying no. And he didn't worry about hurting her feelings. Which leads me to the third principle. Principle number three, when you're tempted, act fast. You got to slip out the back, Jack. It's no time to be coy, Roy. You got to set yourself free, Lee. You just got to go. And that's exactly what he does in this situation. Notice in verse 12 what it says happened next. It says, but he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. And I want you to think of the steps of the progression of this temptation because this is how it happens with us many times. First of all, she looked. She looked at woo Then she talked. Hello, darling. And then she touched. Looking leads to talking that leads to touch. And then you know you can be in very serious trouble. You, you've no doubtedly... Uh, have to be very careful about casual conversations that are not appropriate in the place that you work and in your neighborhood and even in this church because you have good casual conversations with people that end up now you're laying in bed together well we're just talking we're just touching and it leads to sin and it is sin and you have to be very careful with all of that as you're looking at it. You, ha- you have to be careful how you look. You have to be doubly careful about casual conversations. They're not appropriate because in a moment of time, they become flirtatious conversations. And in triply, you have to be careful not to touch that which is not yours to touch. I mean, just think of the list of excuses that Joseph might have used for getting in bed with Potiphar's wife. Like, we're all alone. There's no one in the house. That was true. She made me do it. Boy, she did. She ever did everything but knock him in the head and rape him. She was, she was trying to make it happen. No one else will know. That's probably true. She's in a bad marriage. Very possible. Maybe that was the problem. 
I'm single and I have needs. That's definitely true. I deserve this. That's not true. That's where we cross the line. Everyone fools around like this. Not true, but it sure sounds good. God will understand. Definitely not. God will not understand. But it is a very popular excuse. It was all or nothing. Either he slept with her or he faced losing his job. At first he was cautious. He was courteous to her in the beginning. And then he became courageous. Or maybe crazy, but he stayed cool and got out clean. When she said, why don't you stay for a while? He said, I'd love to, but I've got to run. And he did run at that point. He opened the door. He crossed the lawn over the hedges and through the woods and ran between the camels and went anywhere he could to get away from that woman. I, I kidded the other week with you about Joseph leaving, and, and she was at the door holding his fruit of the looms in her hand. And that was a joke, and you all laughed. But that's not what happened. She did not hold his boxers in her hand. He didn't let it go that far. He didn't let it go far enough to see how much I can take off in this game of strip poker before I'm in trouble. The minute she touched his coat and he realized she was in a, a person of authority over him, he worked for her husband. The minute she touched and violated that space, the Bible says he ran. And in the original Hebrew, the word ran means run, forced, run. He got out of that situation immediately. And the truth is, Joseph didn't wait till it got down to his boxers. He was gone. And that verse, if any of you have with you in your lap a King James Version of the Bible, I love the way the authorized version interprets this verse. Notice on the screen in verse 12, it says, He left the garment in her hand and fled and got him out. What does it mean, he got him out? It means there was no one else to get him out. Him had to do it. <laughs> run, him, run. <laughs> he had to get out of there. No one could get him out of trouble. And sometimes, guys, there's no one that's going to get you out of trouble but you. And you say, God, if you don't want me to have this temptation, then show me different. He may not show you at that point in time. He already showed you in his book. He already showed you in salvation. The Holy Spirit has already convicted you. Sin is the only thing in the world that you can enjoy and then feel guilty about. Because if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is going to keep speaking and moving. And here's the thing I want you to notice. You've got to make up your mind in advance what you're going to do. It's too late to pray about it when Potiphar's wife is playing kissy face with you, sitting on the couch in front of the fireplace. Or when you are panting like a dog that hasn't had a drink in three days. You have to decide in advance. There's a time to talk and there's a time to stop talking. There's a time to stay and there's a time to go. There's a time to walk and there's time to run away. Or as our friend Kenny Rogers says, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away and you've got to know when to run. And Joseph was in a situation where he knew that he had to run. And when temptation comes to me and when temptation comes to you, we have to act first. Because would you get this? This is one of the more important things I'll say today. When God does give you an opportunity to walk from that temptation, and I promise you, if you're a child of God, every single temptation that's come to you, God gives you an opportunity to walk away from it before you sin. That's why the verse says, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But here's what God's not obligated to do. He's not obligated to give you a second opportunity to run from that sin. He's provided for it, whether you're spiritually sensitive to it and get it or not, that's totally up to you. It's so important. 
He, he promised to make a way out, but he isn't obligated to give you three choices if you don't like the first two. I told you I needed those amens in the beginning. Principle number four. When you do right, now this is crazy, don't expect a reward. Don't expect a reward because you did the right thing. You do the right thing because you're supposed to do the right thing. There's a very famous African-American pastor who's in heaven today who for almost 40 years pastored the Mount Olivet Baptist Church in Columbus, Ohio. He's one of the most honored preachers in this city. And on Sunday mornings, I would travel on my way to church and his radio broadcast would be on every Sunday morning at 8.30. And I loved him because of his eloquence. I will tell you, if you're ever around a black preacher and a white preacher, always stay for the black preacher because white preachers can't preach. And I loved how Dr. Booth would always start out. He said, now, brothers and sisters, this morning, we're going to look in the word of God. And you're going to see today the great truths that our Lord has for each one of us. And in a few minutes, he'll be ranting and raving, and I can hardly hold on to the steering wheel because it's so good. And one Sunday morning, I was coming to church, and he was preaching. He said, now, it has come to my attention that some of you feel like you're not getting the honor deserved to you because of the work that you do here in the church and for the kingdom of God. I am so sorry, so I want to set that true, that straight today. He said, some of you who are ushers, and some of you who are deacons, and some of you are tellers, and some of you are teachers, I want to set it straight in your mind and mine. He said, the reason you teach is because you're supposed to teach. And the reason you're a deacon is because you're supposed to deek. And the reason you're an usher is because you're supposed to ush. And by the time he got to the list, it was deathly quiet in that building. And so I want to say to Frankie, and I want to say to you, the reason you're supposed to resist temptation is because that's what you're supposed to do. From the beginning, up front, you do what you're supposed to do because that's what you're supposed to do. And don't expect a band of angels to come down and go, yay, you resisted temptation. You just do it. Do it. And every time you resist it, you grow stronger. It's like a, a spiritual workout. You become stronger as you resist and learn that the power of the Holy Spirit is with you. And, and you can imagine Potiphar's wife wasn't too happy about this. The old saying is true. Hell hath no fury like a scorned woman. So the next verse is, boy, she goes after Joseph in a totally different way. While Joseph's running half naked across the countryside, she's left with nothing but a handful of dirty laundry. It's not a good situation. And two things happen in short order. You might want to jot them down. Number one, she makes a false accusation. As a Christian, the world may make a false accusation against you. In essence, she accused Joseph of rape. Then she calls him a racist name. She calls him that Hebrew in verse 15. Just a touch, just a tinge of racism in her words. Her words sound plausible because she's got Joseph's coat in her hands. He took off, and the only thing I was able to save was the coat. And then the second thing that I want you to see is that Joseph is unjustly imprisoned in verse 19 and 20. The Bible says that when Potiphar heard the story that he, his anger burned. We don't know why it burned. Maybe it burned because he said, she's up to it again. Maybe it burned because he said, I trusted this young man. Maybe it burned because she had told everyone in the household what happened and he was just embarrassed. So Joseph was thrown into jail with common criminals. How could such a thing happen? It happened because the world cannot understand a believer with conviction. 
when you read the great testimonies of the martyrs. If you've not yet read Fox's book of Christian martyrs, put it on your bucket list. Read the stories of men like William Rogers, who in the year 1555, when he was standing for the authority of God's word, and the Roman church was going to burn him at the stake, and they said, come here, we're going to tie your hands and burn you up. And he said, oh, you don't need to tie my hands. I'll gladly burn for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where does someone get a strength to go out like that? Where does someone get a power to resist temptation in a very difficult time? The good news is you can stand up to temptation. The bad news is you may lose your popularity when you stand up at school, young person, to do the right thing and not go along with the crowd. You may lose your place in the office pool, my friend, when you stand up for the things of God rather than going along with the foolish, coarse, filthy jokes that go on in your office. I mean, after all, would you think about this? The only perfect person that ever lived was Jesus, and the world crucified him. We're his followers. What makes us think that we'll get by any less than that? Then principle number five, when you do right, God will honor you. The world may not, but God will. And before we leave leave this story, we, we need to see how it ends. It's not the way we may have expected. Notice in verse 21, it says the Lord was with him. Didn't we just see that in verse 2? In verse 21, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison. Because he's now in prison. They locked him up under the charges of rape that did not happen. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I mean, at this moment, Joseph is in a filthy pit. I don't have time, but look at Psalm 105 sometime talking about that pit. Because of his faithfulness to God, what happened? He lost his job, he lost his freedom, and he lost his reputation. Even the other believers, because the charges were made, believed Joseph must have committed rape or he wouldn't be locked up in jail. And even other believers were discounting his faith and his confidence. He appears to be a ruined man. And the story proves that God honors those who dare to say no. It may not appear that way at first. Some of you here today may be on your way back from an attack, an accusation, and you know inside of your heart that you did the right thing, you said the right thing, you behaved in the right way. You just hold on. God is not finished with that situation. God will do a restorative work in your heart and in your life. And in the end, I promise you as a child of God, whatever has happened to you, and I'm sorry if things have happened to you that are wrong, But we will never be disappointed in keeping our faith in God. And remember, it's always best, it's always better to do the right thing the first time. And there are some things worse than going to jail for doing right. One of them is sleeping in a fluffy bed with a guilty conscience. One of them is saying, I got away with it. When deep inside of your heart, when the lights are off and no one is there, the Holy Spirit of God, if you're a child of God, will not leave you alone and remind you that that is a sin. And you can go so far in sin, but there is a time, I don't know where it is for you, there is a place, I don't know when it will be, but God can have the final word. And the Bible says that for the cause of sin in believers' life, sometimes they are asleep, which means that God has taken them home. God will always have his word honored in testimony. And there's a neat balance to this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It opens with Joseph enjoying good success because the Lord was with him, and it ends up, even though he's in jail, prospering because the Lord was with him 
And in between, he proves himself worthy of greatness because he knew how to say no. How did he know how to do that? Well, the answer is really not that hard to find. Joseph knew who he was. Do you know who you are? And some of you say, well, I have to go sow all my wild oats. I'll get that in the middle of my lifespan. Joseph got it when he was a teenager. Joseph got it when he was 16, 17 years old, and began to go through things. He knew he belonged to God. And when you know that you belong to God, it's going to make easier the decisions that you have to make regarding temptations in, the life, in this life. And here are four very quickly great statements, don'ts to remember when you're tempted to sin. I want you to jot them down on your outline. Number one, and I'm going to do this quickly, don't forget who you are. If you're a child of God, would you raise your hand right now as a testimony of that preacher? I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Please don't ever forget who you are. Number two, don't be surprised when temptation knocks at your door. Everybody makes fun of Jimmy Swaggart and the temptation he went through. Who else would Satan want to go after? A man that God used in such an incredible way. It doesn't mean that that these people were not Christians. It means that Satan has a big target on their backs and he has targets on your back. Number three, don't be deceived by persuasive voices. And we're hearing those voices on television today. I'm seeing TV commercials that are promoting every type of lifestyle you possibly can imagine from corporations. You know what we used to do in the 80s and the 90s? We boycott them. We'd show them. Boycotts have proven to be about as effective as a a Wendy's and a Diet Club in the same parking lot. It has to come from within. It has to come from the inside and has to start right there and and just follow through uh, when when you're hearing those persuasive voices and remind yourself, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. And then number four, don't be confused by the immediate results of you standing strong for God. You know, standing strong for God means when your boss wants you to sign a contract that you know the numbers are wrong, but it's going to make the company money, and you say, sir, I'm sorry, I cannot sign that contract. Standing strong for God is when you do find yourself in Potiphar's court, and there is a temptation of some way, or you're alone in your home in front of the computer and the internet, and you stand strong, and it may mean that for some of you, you may not be able to have a computer for a while. Or it may mean that you need to get someone that you trust to hold you accountable where you put eyes on your computer and every keystroke is monitored. You'd say, Frank, that'd be a very difficult way to live. It's better to live that way and have accountability than it would be to give in to that temptation. It steals, robs, and kills your joy for the Lord. And you come to church every week and you sing the praises of God and you want it so much and then you go back home and you feel so defeated. Guys, we don't have to live that way. And God doesn't hold our past. What I love, my mentor is Dr. Jerry Falwell at a distance. And I love Dr. Falwell staying in life. He said, any sin that you can imagine, I've committed twice. But they're all under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you've been sleeping with. I don't care what's gone through your mind. The thing I want you to leave here with today is knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. Because Sorgard was right when he said that you really become the person that God wants you to do it. And when it's 5.30 p.m. and the kids are cranky and you want to blow up at your husband and the dinner's not ready, count your blessings and just say no. 
when your mind plays tricks on you and says no one's going to see it, just do it one time, but you remember that God sees everything you do, just say no. When Satan whispers in your ear, go ahead and do it, everyone's doing it, you, you, you remember and you say, I'm not going to do it and just say no. When you feel like giving someone a piece of your mind, remember you don't have a piece to spare and you just say, I'm not going to do it and you just say no. When you find yourself down and out and up against the wall, when nothing is going right and you're entangled in every mess that you can imagine before you say something you shouldn't say or do something you shouldn't do or blow up your top or give up the ghost, remember that God still loves you and just say no. And in the end, it comes down to one question. Christian, do you know who you are? Tim Tebow said, the world looks at me as a football player who's a Christian But I look at the world and say, I'm a Christian who happens to play football. Here's my sermon in a sentence. If you know who you are, you can serve Jesus Christ anywhere on this earth.